Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. To start the audio, like I just did. So, we're going to try to use it one more time to see if we can get any volume going on the live stream so if you're on there i think you can actually leave comments and i may be able to see it uh, so i'm going to send a comment <laughs> let me know if you hear it <laughs> hear me and so maybe i don't know only thing i guess the only one is sending comments to is for youtube so Anyway, you may not be able to do comments on Facebook. You may be leaving and I can see them, but the only one I can send them to looks like is Facebook. But anyway, uh, we're going to do uh, Ecclesiastes this uh, afternoon, chapter 4. And uh, we'll obviously live stream into YouTube and to Facebook Live. And we'll put it on the podcast, which I have going separately on audio. So, uh Go find the podcast, RK Ministries, wherever podcasts are found. Like, subscribe, leave comments, give good reviews, those kinds of things. They help on all the on the pla- all the platforms like YouTube and those kind of things. So go do all that for me, and that will help out uh, with uh, the algorithms to help more people find us and and be able to listen to what it is that we're saying um, as far as God's word and the biblical worldview in this world that we live in today. And don't forget, uh, as the ticker is ticking along there, we got the revival coming up in uh, at Friendship Baptist Church on November the fifth through the through the eighth. Uh, it's going to start at seven p.m. each night, so Sunday night uh, through Wednesday night at seven p.m. And uh, so I encourage you, if you're in the area, to uh, come, bring somebody with you on those nights, invite others to come with you on those nights. I'll be preaching on Sunday night for the revival. Then I have uh, Jay Penton will be preaching on uh, Monday and Tuesday night. And then my good friend from Dothan, Alabama, Donald Irwin, will be preaching on Wednesday night. So make your plans to come there, bring some folks with you that uh, are unchurched or unsaved. And see, we're going to pray that the Lord will will reap a harvest there. And so we've been at Friendship doing uh, 12 weeks of prayer for the last 12 weeks. On Tuesday, the 26th of September, we will start what we are calling 40 Days of Prayer. So for 40 days, for the next 40 days, every day, some portion of the day, spend some time. We're going to spend some time praying for God to bring revival to us personally, bring revival to our church, to our community, and to work in the revival service that we've set aside. And be glad if uh, you would join us in that effort. I have put up on our website, Friendship Baptist Church, uh, uh, you can go. You can just Google Friendship Baptist Church Tallison. You can find the website, and there's a there's a resources page there. You go to that resources page. There's a 40 day devotion if you would like to follow along with that devotion. It's not specifically related to revival, but it's just a 40 day devotion to get us into God's Word and encourage us to spend a little bit of time in prayer and part of that prayer time in, in uh, dedicated to the issue of revival. So, without further ado, let's get into Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So, 
you know, uh, Solomon's kind of getting been up and down in Ecclesiastes uh, with us. Uh, he's he's given us uh, some, I guess, depressing things to think about over and over again. But then there have been these elements of, hey, you know, God is in the picture and there is hope in God. And, and I've told you from the very beginning, that's kind of what Solomon's goal is in Ecclesiastes. His goal is to get us to think about and contemplate the meaning of life and is there meaning in life and he's driving us to this conclusion that the only way we find real true meaning in life is ultimately through a personal relationship with with god uh in his from his perspective a personal relationship in the sense of being uh fearing the lord yahweh he'll make that conclusion and being obedient to him and from the New Testament perspective, looking back on the promise of God through through the Messiah, through Jesus, we find that relationship and redemption in, in uh, Christ. But it's still through that relationship with God, it's, that's the only way we really find true meaning uh, in life. If, if, if this world or this life exists merely of us living and breathing under the sun and there's nothing after this, then there is no hope and there is no meaning and everything is vanity and striving for uh, striving for the wind. And of course, we see a little bit of that tonight in Solomon's uh, <clears throat> treatment in in chapter four. He kind of goes back on the on the depressing side just a little bit, but you know, I think there is uh, still elements of hope that we can find uh, in in this passage as well. So, without further ado, we just we just kind of get into it and just go take it verse at a time and, and walk our way through it. So it begins in verse 1. Verse 1 through 4, really the first section, I think, or the first thought uh, paragraph where he talks about the vanity of oppression. Uh, and so he, he begins with this idea in chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppression that, that the oppressions that are done under the sun. And again, that under the sun, key phrase, uh, when you're looking at life merely from this from this perspective that we live under the sun, there's nothing left. God is not on the other side of the equation. It's all this temporal world, and when we die, we die, and that's the end of it. If you look at it from that perspective, then everything is ultimately going to be vanity, and he sees us oppression. And, you know, what... what what kind of world you live in where the there is oppression in in this world and there's nothing more beyond this there's never there's no hope beyond this world that we live in then this 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 whole life is is meaningless and futile if you can't really see any ultimate uh rectification of the evils that are in the world and so Solomon goes on. He saw this, sees all the oppression. And hey, we we live in a world today. You can see oppression all over the place, right? And, and again, you know, we you got we got to we got to define oppression, right? And, and oppression, in I think the truest sense of the word, are those people who are being literally oppressed uh, by other groups of people, and they have no way to take care of themselves or fend for themselves and they're being taken advantage of in this sense i think that solomon is talking about um you're not oppressed just because someone disagrees with you about your worldview or your lifestyle you're not oppressed because someone says a mean comment about you or to you on social media uh, that's not real and true oppression real and true oppression is when people who cannot fend for themselves and cannot defend themselves are ultimately uh, oppressed 
And so he goes on, he says, behold, uh, the tears of the oppressed, he says, and he beheld the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And, and that is absolutely true if we live in a world that is merely under the sun. If there is no eternality, if there is no God, if there is no afterlife, if there is no ultimate righteous justice from a righteous judge, then there is no, no one to comfort the oppressor, right? Because where, where does one's morality come from? To be honest with you if, you, if you live in a world that is absent from the concept of God, or absent from God, then you have, have no grounds for morality. And if you have no grounds for morality, then who is to say that you can even define what oppression is, right? <clears throat> what, what does it really even matter uh, that's going on in this world? Because there's no moral basis for you to say, hey, that's wrong. And it's only with God that we can even notice that there are oppressions that are taking place. It's only with God that we know that there is evil in this world as opposed to good. And you can't have one without the other, really. You can't believe one without the other. You can't believe that there is there is evil or good in this world without ultimately believing that the other exists as well. And ultimately, the only way we know about evil is because there is a holy, righteous, good moral God that transcends uh, time and space, and he is the uh, fundamental uh, foundation, he's the definitional element of what is good and moral, and the, those things that are opposed to that are evil. And so the only way to really to have <clears throat> meaning in life and to, and to have a basis for morality to even see oppression is to believe that there is a just, moral, holy, eternal God who is the def, def, who defines what good and and uh, what good is, and so even in that we see uh, Solomon has his eye on uh, God, uh, but if you try to take him out of the equation, then this world makes no sense. And then he goes on and says, on the other side of of on the side of their oppressors, there was power. And so he's equating those who, the ones who are doing the oppressing are the ones who have the power. But then look at this statement. It's a very interesting statement, this last sentence. And I couldn't read, I read several people regarding this last statement. And none of them took it where I thought that it ought to go. Uh, most of them didn't, didn't, even, didn't even mention it in, in conjunction with the last group of people he's talking about because he says the same thing at the end of the same thing at the end of the sentence that where he's talking about the oppressors oppressed as he's talking about the oppressors just like he said the oppressors he saw their or the oppressed he saw their tears and they had no comforter at the end of the sentence dealing with the ones who are doing the oppressing he says there was no one to comfort them in that an amazing sentence now, a lot of people probably tie it back to the oppressed, those who are being oppressed, that there was none to comfort them. Uh, and you might can make the argument for that. But when it's all said and done, there is an emptiness of the soul of the oppressor as well. And there is none to help alleviate that emptiness of the soul if there is no God, right? And so you know, that's kind of the way I took that passage, that for both, 
there is no one to bring comfort to them. There's no one to bring ultimate satisfaction to them because a lot of times those who are doing the oppression, oppressing, they're oppressing people because they're broken and hurt on the inside uh, spiritually. And if that's the case, then there's nothing there. If, there. if God is not in the equation, there's no one in this universe that can ultimately feel that brokenness or mend that brokenness or, or, or change the spirit of that, of that person. And so he goes on uh, in verse 2. And I thought, uh, this is his conclusion, based on the fact that he sees the oppressed, uh, and he sees the oppressor, and he sees there's no comfort there for anyone, right? That there's nothing going to change, is ultimately what he's saying. He says, I thought the dead were all, uh, he says, and I thought the dead who are already dead may for, uh, more fortunate than the living who still live. So in other words, it was better to be dead than alive and see all this oppression, is what he's saying. To see this calamity in the world and see that there's nothing that's going to be or can be done about it, if you're looking at it merely from under the sun, apart from God, to live in a world where there is no meaning, where there is no purpose, there is no hope, there is there is no no hope that one day a righteous judge will will judge all of the wicked and rectify the wrongs in this world and uh, judge those who have done evil. If you live in a world where that's not a possibility, then Solomon's conclusion is it's better to be dead than to be alive and and not have to even look at that stuff anymore. You've already seen enough of it. And there's an interesting phrase in verse two, though the way the way the wording is, in particular, in the English, he says that, and I thought the dead who are already dead. Isn't that interesting? The dead who are already dead. It seems like the implication is there there are dead who are not already dead. And so, if you want to push a little bit on the text, you know, again, you got to be careful when you're pushing on on the text in a in an allegorical kind of way. But it almost seems that there's an implication that they're dead men walking, right, in the sense of spiritual dead men that are walking in this world. And and that is a that is a theological reality. Uh, there are, there are those who are dead and they dead spiritually, and they don't even know that they're dead uh, spiritually. We were in John chapter one <clears throat> this morning at Friendship Baptist Church. We just finished the prologue last week, the first eighteen verses, uh, and then we started in the outright narrative of the Gospel of John this week, verses nineteen through twenty-eight in chapter one. And one of the statements that John the Baptist made in his testimony about Jesus when those. Uh, priests and Levites came to uh, question him uh, about who he was, John the Baptist, about who he was and what, with what authority he was doing what he was doing. Uh, part of the testimony that he gave to them about after he denied, hey, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet. He, he, they said, well, who are you? Uh, he says, I'm one, uh, you know, I, I, I baptize with water, right? But he says, there's one who stands among you. And then the saddest part of that phrase in, in the text was, you do not know him. And there are people in this world who are like that. They, they are living, or spiritual zombies, right? They, they're walking dead zombies spiritually because they don't even realize uh, that they are dead. They don't even realize that they're, they're depravity. And so there are a lot of people in this world who fit that uh, to a T. But he goes on to say, and, 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 and I thought that the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still uh, alive. 
And so a uh, couple comments from a couple guys I read. Uh, one is uh, Trap, T-A-R-P-P. Uh, says, men like silly fish see one another caught and jerk out of the pond, jerked out of the pond of life, but they see not, alas. Um, they don't see the, they see not alas, he says, the fire and the pan into which they are cast that die in their sins. And so the point is, you know, men are like fish in that way. Sometimes we, we, we see, we see people get yanked out or see the fish get yanked out and the other fish that has no idea what's going on, right? He just sees, Hey, he's there. Now he's gone, but he don't realize that that one that just left is going into the fires of torment in, in the frying pan. And the same thing for humanity. And so the perspective from Mr. Trapp is that this statement really where he says that the dead who are already dead in that sense, if you take it in that spiritual deadness sense, the, those spiritual dead who are already physically dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive since they don't see the oppression anymore. It, it, that statement doesn't realize the fact, if God's not in the picture, that statement doesn't realize the fact that there's an ultimate judge and that everyone who dies will stand before that judge uh, one day and give an account of their life. And and you guys, have, if you've listened to me any time, you've heard uh, me say this uh, quite often, that uh, most people are going to meet their maker through death before uh, rather than him coming back in the eastern sky. Now, he's coming back. Don't get me wrong on that. We are anticipating an imminent return of Jesus Christ, but our history, the history of humanity, has proven that if God tarries, the majority of humanity will meet their maker through death. And that, you know, is probably going to include you or me, unless the Lord comes in our lifetime, which he could. But if he tarries, most of us are going to meet the Lord through death rather than that day he comes and parts the eastern sky. So we got to be ready for that. And we got to know that once we walk through that doorway of death and we stand before that judge of all the earth, that we will be weighed, right? And only those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ will find their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And they are, they are imputed. They, have, they stand before God with the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And they are ushered into uh, the presence of the Lord for, forever to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. But the converse is true for those who die in their sins, right? And who have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. They will be cast into uh, outer darkness. They'll be cast into uh, eternal torment. And so you got to be ready for that. Today is the day of salvation. Listen to David Guzik. Um, he's got a good good uh, commentary, just down-to-earth, plain English kind of commentary um, uh, on the whole Bible. Uh, and so you, you can find this enduring word is what his commentary is. Uh, he says this about this uh, this verse. He says, The dead who were already dead is an interesting, interesting phrase. It implies that there are, uh, there are the dead who are not yet dead, the living dead, so to speak. They walk this earth and have biological life, but their spirit and soul seem dead. So obviously you see what prompted my thought on that, uh, on that phrase. Now go to verse 3. Verse 3 says, but better than both, so better than the dead who uh, are not, are, who are already dead and the living that are alive, he says, better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under uh, the sun. So he says it's better to not even have ever been born than to have to live and see this evil that is under the sun. And again, the only way you can come to that ultimate conclusion is to, have, is to, is to look at life apart from the existence of God. 
if you look at life merely from a temporal, earthly existence and you see the amount of evil that's in this world, you, you would come to the same conclusion that Solomon's the, coming to. Kohelet, the preacher, is coming to here. That there is no hope. There is no purpose. And all of this is meaningless. And I get it, man, that there's tragedy in this world. But with God in the picture, with God on the other side of the equation, even the tragedy in, world, in this world has purpose and has meaning. Now, I get it. That's, that's easy preaching hard living kind of stuff right there. But God, just like with Joseph, right? He's a prime example of that. When he was taken from his family, thrown into the pit, uh, sold into slavery, went down to Egypt, and it was a slave in Potiphar's house. And then because of what Potiphar's wife did, he ended up in prison. And then from the prison, after he stayed there for a while, he ultimately did end up in the palace. But he had a rough journey to get to the palace. But his concluding remark to his brothers at the end of that narrative in the scripture was, what you meant for evil, right, the evil that's in this world, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So God used that evil journey that he was taken on for the ultimate good of not only saving his life, but ultimately saving a world. He saved Egypt, he saved the nations around them, and he ultimately saved Israel. That's, that's the purpose behind it. He was ultimately there to save Israel and so the Messiah can continue to come. So God was orchestrating his life in, down that road and down that journey. And so that evil that was being done to him had a purpose, and God was using it to bring about the ultimate good. And the same is true in our life. I don't understand all of it, and I never will understand all of it until I stand before God face to face, because now I see in the mirror dimly, right? But then I'll, I'll know even as I am known. <clears throat> but you can rest assured that God's aware of whatever evil is going on in this world and even whatever challenges and evil that face you in life. And you're, if you're not alone in that if you're a follower of, of Christ. You're not alone in that. God's well aware of that. It's not taking him by surprise. And so you can trust him in the midst of it. Um, so moving on, verse 4. Verse 4 through 6 is the next section. It's bittersweet accomplishment. Um, and so he begins in verse 4. He says, then I saw, so he's changing subject a little bit. He says, then I saw the toil and all skill in work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also... This also is vanity and striving after the wind. I mean, Solomon's looking out at life and says, the only reason that person's working so hard is because he's jealous of what his neighbor, neighbor has and he wants to have more than what his neighbor has. Well, hey, there's an element of truth to that in life today, right? There is an element, an absolute element of truth to that in life. A lot of times we, we, we say we've we got to keep up with the Joneses, right? There are those in this world who have to keep, who want to keep up with the Joneses. Someone else has got this kind of car. Well, I got to get that kind of car. Someone else has this kind of house. Well, I got to get that kind of house. I got to keep up status. I got to keep up, uh, you know, my my uh, social uh, score in in society. People people look at me differently if I don't have these particular things uh, in life. So. Uh, Solomon says, hey, the, the toil and the labor and the skill that person has, a lot of that comes from his envy of his neighbor. So again, it's, it's meaningless. It's, it's worthless um, because he's never going to be happy um, in that pursuit. 
And that's the truth. If that's the only reason we're working, if we're just living in this world under the sun without understanding what Solomon really has already told us, that the only way to find true meaning and value in our life and in our work and in our relationships is to have a relationship with God and understand that God, we work for God, right? And we live for God and everything in life takes on value and meaning and purpose when God is in the mix. Then he goes on to say in this uh, same section, the fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. So the, the idea is maybe this person gets jealous, you know, and gets fed up and frustrated with the fact that other people are succeeding and he's not. So he just folds his hands, right, and, and, and just sits back and does nothing. But what he doesn't realize is that he's only hurting himself uh, when he when he does that. That's what the fool is destroying himself. He's bringing ruin to his own self. He's not helping himself just because he's mad or jealous or envious or you know being a stubborn little 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 child uh, when he folds his hand and does nothing. And so again, there, there are a lot of people like that, right? in this world that sit back fold their hands and do nothing and they ultimately bring destruction to their own life verse 6 says better is a handful of uh with quietness than two handfuls uh with toil and a striving and a striving after the wind uh that's a that's a that's a good one right there right because here's here's the thing a lot of people think about or think the way a lot of people think in this world a lot of people think in this world that the more money I have, the more wealth I have, then the happier I'm going to be, the more satisfied I'm going to be, the more fulfilled that I'm going to be. And again, I, I'm, I'm not against money. The Lord blesses people with um, money, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. We know the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So if our if our heart is bent toward money and the acquisition of money and that's our love then that becomes our god and that leads to all kinds of evil in our life so that we can satisfy our desire to gain more and more money but you know there, this this is a true reality money is not everything like somebody told me the other day we're, we're talking a little bit about the issue of money money's not everything but he says money can sure do a lot of things. Well, yeah, it can do a lot of things, and it can help out in a lot of ways. It's amoral. It takes on the morality of the person who has it. Uh, so in that sense, you know, it can be good, and it can help, and it can bring, uh, you know, some sense of peace and comfort and happiness in life. But at some point, we've got to get to the place that we are we are content enough to trust God with where we are. And I get it. Easy preaching, hard living, right? All right. I, I know. Because um, money, all you got to do is look out into the world of Hollywood. And you see people that have more money than any one person uh, could ever spend in a lifetime. And how many of them are miserable and unhappy? in their life because money isn't everything and money can't ultimately bring fulfillment and joy and happiness in life it comes with a personal relationship with god through jesus christ that's where we find our fulfillment and paul is the greatest example of this principle right here that it's better to have a handful in quietness than to have two handfuls in the midst of toil and trouble and strife because all that's that's striving after the wind Paul comes to this place in his life where he says, I know how to deal with having very little. 
And he says, I also know how to deal with having a whole lot. Because I've been in, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, I've been in both situations in my life. And he says, what I have learned is I can do all these things, being with having little and having a lot. I can deal with both of those circumstances and situations because it is Christ who strengthens me. It is in Christ that he finds his value and he finds his comfort and he finds his finds his fulfillment and his his ultimate success is in Christ, not in the stuff that he has or the lack of stuff that he has. And if you and I could ever get to that point in our life, you know, I get it. We got to live in this world and we need money to exist in this world. But if we can ever get to the place in our life where we find true fulfillment and comfort and satisfaction in Christ and Christ alone, then we can deal with the, the even the difficulty of having little that it brings and even the difficulty of having a lot. Having a lot is not always an easy thing, right? And so there's difficulty on both sides and there's temptations of different sorts on both sides. And so we can we can deal with those things if we understand that our worth and our comfort and our value and our hope and, you know, our peace is all in Christ Jesus and not in uh, the material things of of this world. And so <clears throat> that leads us to the next section, which is verse seven and eight. Uh, the long, I call this the lonely workaholic. And listen to what uh, Koheleth says, the preacher. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. He says, one person who has no other. So this, this person has no family. Look, he says it in the next phrase. Either son or, or brother. He didn't have a son, doesn't have a brother. If he doesn't have a son, that means he doesn't have a family uh, in the sense of a wife and children. He doesn't have a brother. So he's, he's a loner, right? He says, yet there, yet there is no end to his toil. So the implication is he didn't have anything anyone or anybody that will benefit from his labors in the in the present or even in the future but yet he continues to labor and and labor and labor and labor chasing after these riches look at what it says and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that and there are a lot of people in this world that's that that is that is their story right that their eyes never, whether they have a family or not, right? Because there are a lot of people who are workaholics who have a family and they neglect their family to their detriment uh, in the pursuit of riches. And again, nothing wrong with being rich and nothing wrong with hard work. You guys have heard me, if you've listened long enough, you've heard me say, even, even, in, even in the fourth commandment, even in the created order, before the fall, God's plan for us was to work. He planted a garden. He put Adam and Eve in the garden. He intended for them to tend to that garden, to work. And then the, the labor came after the fall, thorns and thistles, right? Then came, we will work at the sweat of our brow because of our sinfulness. Um, but work was always a part of God's created order. And even inherent in the, our part of the fourth commandment is you shall labor. Six days you shall labor and on the seventh you shall rest. So even in the fourth commandment that the Lord gives to us, it, the, the implication is that work ought to be a natural part of our life. So nothing wrong with work, nothing wrong with hard work. Even the Bible tells us in another, in another place, if, you, if one doesn't work, he doesn't take care of his, if he doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. If he doesn't take care of his own, he's worse than, worse than an infidel. So there's something to be said about hard work. 
but I think when hard work becomes our when work becomes our ultimate goal for the pursuit of riches, then that becomes our God. And especially if we have a family and we neglect our family to for the pursuit of riches, uh, I think that we're doing a disservice to ourselves and a disservice to our family, and we're living in an ungodly, unbiblical, unbiblical way. There needs to be balance there. Needs to be balanced there. And this guy was never satisfied with the riches anyway. He wanted more. He wanted more. He kept going for more and more and more. It was never enough. And guess what? It's never going to be enough. If you're trying to find your satisfaction in your career or in your bank account, you're never going to be satisfied. I've already said it. Your satisfaction, your worth, your value needs to come from your relationship with Christ. And I think Solomon is making us contemplate these things in Ecclesiastes. Now, he, he don't know Jesus Christ, but he knows the promise of God. He knows the Messiah. He knows that God exists. And so he's, he's, he's pointing us to Yahweh in that sense. And Yahweh ultimately points us to Jesus Christ. So we have to find our value and our worth and our meaning and our purpose in God. And when we do that, these other things will come into proper perspective. That's why I think it's Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God, and then these things will be added to you. Right? So we, we need to bring them into proper perspective. So he goes on and says, he, His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asked, For whom am I toiling in depriving myself of pleasure? So he don't even contemplate the fact that he has no one to leave this to, no one to enjoy it with. He's just constantly working himself to the bones to gain riches that never bring satisfaction. And there are a lot of people in this world who, who try to find their meaning in that kind of uh, lifestyle. Then he goes on this, uh, he says, this also is vanity and an unhappy business. Well, that would be an unhappy business, right? Because I think some of the greatest happiness that God affords us in this world is the happiness of family, right? Uh, of our relationship with our spouse, our relationship with our children, our relationship with our extended family, our mothers, our fathers, our grandmothers, our grandfathers, our grandchildren, nieces and nephews, aunts and uncles, all those family brings uh, happiness to life. That's one of God's means to bring about happiness in our life. And so we need to sometimes stop and smell the roses, as they say, right? So that leads us to the second to last section, uh, the value of friendship is what I titled this section. He goes in verse 9, he says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. So in other words, if you have a good partnership in a business or in work, then you can potentially double your profits if you if you want to look at it in that way. You can have a, a better outcome as you work together and strive together. There's companionship that comes with it. You can hold each other accountable as you go, go uh, through this uh, laborious process. And uh, ultimately, you can, you can make more uh, in the long run when you work together. And so he goes on, verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Now, I can't, I can't help but think about that pendant, you know. They used to have them commercials with the pendant on there. I've fallen and I can't get up. Uh, commercials. Uh, and, hey, you know, there, there is help with friendship, right? When, with friendship comes the possibility for help. And I, I got it. There, there's, there's, there's a, 
uh, probably a handful of folks I could I think that I could pick up the phone at any hour of the night you know, a very small handful of folks I think I can call pick up the phone and call in the middle of the night and say I need help and and they would be here they would be here to help me and, and the same for them I would be there to help them in any way that I could so it's good to have friendship in that way companionship uh, in that kind of way it does bring because hey there's not a person on planet earth that at some point or another doesn't need help all of us need help now a lot of people are like me and you don't want to ask for help right and, and a lot of times that has to do with pride doesn't it because uh, you don't want people to know you can't handle it by yourself and you want to try to handle it by yourself um, but there is something to be said about this idea that, hey, at some point or another, all of us need some kind of help. And it's good to have a friend and a companion that we can call on uh, for help. Now, the ultimate companion and friend that we can call on for help is God, right? So verse 11, he says, again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But who can keep warm alone? And again, I like to watch a lot of these survival shows. And one of my favorite ones, old dual, dual survivor. Um, and you get the two guys out there trying to, trying to work through a scenario that they're put in. And a lot of times they can't make a fire. And one of the ways that they warm each other is they kind of bunker down in a small uh, area and they pull a lot of insulation around them. And so it's the insulation in their own body heat that can keep them warm. And so that's the idea. Again, it's, it's, it's warmth, it's help, it's companionship and his help in those times of need. And he says, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, uh, two will withstand him. So again, there's security in numbers, right? How many times you tell your kids, you know, don't, don't go out here alone, don't do this alone, or uh, even adults, right? And in the world we live in today, man, you got to be careful going alone anywhere uh, because there's crazy people in this world who do uh, evil, debaucherous things for, for what seems to be no apparent reason. Um, and so it's good to have companionship and for someone to have your back, right? To have your six. We need those kinds of friends and that, that kind of companionship in this world. I don't think we were really meant to be lone rangers. Now, sometimes we have to go it alone, right? Uh, use an example in the sermon this morning when it was talking about Noah. Like Noah stood essentially alone he was there with his family so there there were six seven other people right with him but for 120 years Noah knowing his family was it because uh, other people didn't believe what was what was about to happen but it's, it's better to have companionship I think God intended for us to have companionship in that way and the greatest companion is is for the husband his wife for the wife her husband and then we have those friends in our life uh, that go beyond that circle but uh, there's nothing wrong with having good friends in your life and, and, and you ought to have a few that you can call on when you need help and then he throws us a twist at the end of this thing no pun intended uh, because you would expect him to say a a twofold cord is hard to be broken, but he doesn't. He, he says, hey, it's good to have a companion, essentially. If one falls, he can't get up. But if there are two there, he can help the other one up. And if you got two that are working together, there's a good reward. If you got two who are together, they can keep themselves warm. You got warm. You got two who are together, they can protect each other uh, and, bring, and provide security for one another. And then he says, a, three cord, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Well, some people have brought that out to, to say, and I, I think it's rightly so, that in that one little statement, we have Kohelet, the preacher, pointing us to Yahweh. Because I think the implication is that the other 
cord that is there is God himself. And so in that sense, and, and we've all used that analogy as Christians before, right? In, in our marriages, that three, three-fold cord, our husband and wife and God in the center of that marriage. <coughs> and so in that sense, we can think of it in that way, that God is part of this picture and that, in that partnership. You have the two friends and you have God in the center of that relationship and that brings about that unbreakable cord. I think there was a statement in our Sunday school book today and I, I thought it was a really good statement. It was, it was regarding though the, the Lord's uh, feeding of the 5,000 um, in Mark's gospel where we had in Sunday school. And one of the statements that they brought out in the in the commentary part of it was that an assessment of any situation that does not include uh, the in, does not include God, in my paraphrase, that does not include God, is is uh, uh, is is not a good assessment. Now you can have some good, truthful statements about the situation that are true and real and relevant. But if you forget that you have God on your side and you don't include God in that equation to the answer, then you need to go back and recalculate. Because uh, we always need to put God into the equation to any problem that we have, right? As a matter of fact, he ought to be the first ingredient in the equation. We ought to go to him first. And that's not to say that we ought not do what we need to do uh, to try to, to, to help ourselves and, and use the skills and talents and abilities that we have and the resources we have to, to help the situation. But we, we first and foremost need to go to God, and then God will give us wisdom to use whatever it is we have to overcome the situation, or God may perform a miracle like, you know, taking uh, some bread and some fish and multiplying it to the point that he can feed 5,000 people. Uh, he may perform a miracle in your life. So don't leave God out of your relationship. Don't leave God out of the equation in your life when you're dealing with difficult uh, problems. So that leads us to the last uh, section, verses 13 through 16. And I just call this the vanity of fame and fortune in light of our short life. And it really piggybacks on this idea that we've already read in this chapter regarding the uh, uh, pursuit of riches, right? Uh, he says, but, and he used the analogy of a king versus uh, a wealthy old king and a, and a young wise person. He says, better is a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. All right, so he, he says, it is better for a person to be young and wise than to be, and, and, and to be poor. Not have any social status, right? Not have the stature of a king and the wealth of a king. Then to be a king or a person with fame and fortune uh, or social status and a lot of wealth, but they're hard-headed and pig-headed and they won't listen to anybody and they can't take advice in their life. He said it's better to be poor and poor. It's better to be poor and wise and young than to be that person who has status. And man, our world is filled with this this idea that we we've got to have our 15 minutes of fame right we when most people will do anything to get their 15 minutes of fame and to try to accumulate wealth in this world that seems to be the goal of our society just to have wealth well wealth without wisdom uh is a bad bad thing and so he goes on he says for he went from prison to to the throne this king though in his own kingdom he had been born poor so the king was poor, and he went to prison, and he came from prison. He went to the palace. 
He says, I saw all the living who moved about under the sun, all with, with the youth who was, who, who was to stand in the king's place, or king's palace. And then he goes on, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. So in other words, he had this massive kingdom. The, the, the people were innumerable that the king was over. And the king had this position, he had this power, he had all the acronyms uh, that come with this position and this power. But, but look, what, look what Solomon concludes at the end of this. Yet, those who come later will not rejoice in him. And we've kind of seen language like this before. Because Solomon is saying, you die and you're not remembered. All right? And the point is, what is all this fame, fortune, wealth, status worth if when you die, it is forgotten? What is the purpose in it? Why not just eat, drink, and be merry and not worry about tomorrow? Because it's meaningless and no one's going to remember you anyway. And whatever you accumulate is going to go to somebody else who's not going to remember you and not use it in a wise way, Solomon has concluded. So if, if we live life where that is all there is, and there is no eternal hope, there is no eternal future, then everything we're doing is meaningless, right? And we are the most pitied of all the people of the world. The only way you can really find true value and lasting meaning in anything that we do is to understand that there is a God and that what we are doing is to bring glory and honor to him, ultimately. And in so doing, there is purpose and meaning and value in everything that we do. And we ought to be about doing the things we do for the glory of God. And I think that's where Solomon's driving us. We might not see it yet. But that's where Solomon is driving us. When we get to chapter 12, he's going to put a nice little bow on that, uh, on that uh, answer to that question he's been pushing us to consider and contemplate. And he, he, he comes to that conclusure that sure, surely this is all vanity and striving after the wind. So again, a lot of times it sounds uh, probably redundant uh, in we're going through Ecclesiastes, but it is. He's, he's driving home this same point to us. That there is no, the ultimate point is there is no meaning in this life under the sun if there is no God. If there is no God, and it's just time and space that we live in, and we're no different than, than animals, that when we die, we go to, go to the earth, and we become dust, and we become maggot food, and that's it. We're done. And everything we work for and everything we accumulated is no, no one cares. No one remembers. It's not passed on. Uh, it's not a lasting legacy for us. Somebody else gets it and they squander it or whatever it is they do with it. We don't even know. Then there is no meaning and purpose and value in life. But you and I know because we've read God's word. We know that he exists. We've, we've come to faith in Jesus Christ that there is 
meaning and value in everything that we do because God exists and our life is meant to be uh, a living sacrifice for him. And so in our relationships and in our marriage and our raising our kids and our whether it's education or whether we it's our work or whatever it is that we do, it is to be done to bring glory and honor to God ultimately. And in that we find meaning uh, in who we are in him. Right, who we are in Christ Jesus. We find our meaning, we find our fulfillment and our satisfaction. So in that way, it really doesn't matter what the circumstances look like. We we can we can transcend the circumstances because we have this hope in Christ and we have we have the hope of Christ in us, right? Through the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. All right, that's my spiel on uh, Ecclesiastes chapter four. Uh so next week we'll pick up again. Uh, Lord willing, I'll see. Uh, depends on uh, how things go on Thursday. If I'll be able to do a theolo- theology Thursday, and hopefully, uh, when I go back and review this, you can actually hear me this time. Where last time you couldn't hear me. There are actually bars on the volume up here on the little tiny screen that I'm looking at. So hopefully, it all worked. If not, it'll be on the podcast, and uh, we can uh, you, you can go find it there. So until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you.